Hi everyone and welcome to the latest edition of the Farming for Change podcast. Today's the 22nd of April, which for those that don't know is Earth Day, which evidently is a time set aside to celebrate the Earth, learn about the environment and promote conservation. The theme for this year's event is Invest in Our Planet. So today we're fortunate enough to be down just outside Basingstoke with Tim May from Kingsclear Estates. Where Ben and I have had a, a good look round the farm and had a look at uh, what Tim's been up to. We've uh, and we've also just rescued a cow off a gate. So um, on uh, Earth Day 2022, the uh, Farming for Change podcast podcast team have rescued a cow. Well, we didn't do a lot actually. We stood there and watched as Tim expertly manoeuvred the cow off the gate. I must admit, I was feeling quite nervous about how I was supposed to help, but. Uh, here at Kingsclear Estate, there's been a shift under Tim's management, and it's listed in the on the, the first page of the, page of the website. From commodity to community, from monoculture to biodiversity, from linear supply chain to circular economy, from taking from the land to giving back to the soil, from farmer or conservationist to farmer as agroecologist. Tim, thanks for having us. It's been great having a look round. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Ben. What are your thoughts, having had a quick look round? And you, know, you actually did less than me on rescuing the cow. I was bringing up the rear. <laughs> Very good, just in case of emergencies. Just in case things went awfully wrong. And, and um, yeah, what do I, uh, um, my head's spinning because, unfortunately, Tim is, is more than leading, leading a charge in a direction that I'm, I'm certainly heading on my own farm. Unfortunately, when we seem to get tours of these farms, I, I, I end up with far more projects um, to line up and um, he's, I think I think for me the, the dairy side of it and what you're doing which is almost revolutionary but almost going um, back to very traditional as well it, it, it all in one all in one way is something I'm incredibly jealous um, about I thought it was absolutely phenomenal but it was quite good to go around somewhere talking to you Tim and uh, Every now and then, Ben would be saying, oh, X, Y, and Z, and you say, yeah, I've done that. And uh, it's, it's actually really nice to meet someone that um, can actually go head-to-head with Ben in terms of some of your ideas. I mean, we've been around, we've had a look at the, the, the mobile milking parlour, we've looked at plants, the, the dairy, uh, some chicken sheds, all sorts of things around your farming, you're all organic here. Yeah. And it's just, it's just brilliant. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a fair-sized estate, but you're you're trying all sorts of stuff, and we've seen quinoa planted. We've yeah, just it, it's brilliant, and it's um it's been really interesting. And you've also got some big projects, um, sort of landscape-based, like wildlife ponds, and all sorts of things on the on the go. So it's been a real pleasure to ha- pleasure to have a look round. Do you want to just give us a quick rundown? Obviously, I I heard you on radio four a while ago, so you know you're you're out and about and putting the word about um about what you do. So Tim, who are you? Um, who am I? So, uh, I don't know what everyone says, uh, sort of classifies themselves as how many generations of the farming they are. But anyway, I'm a fourth generation farmer. And um, down here in, in uh, Basingstoke, like you say, we've gone from, I guess on the, on the farm, we've gone from being a mixed farm up until the early 2000s. Uh, and then we went into an all arable farm. And then I did a, an Uffield scholarship in... Um, 2011 and realised we need to get the grass back into the rotation and so then I became a, a mixed farmer again and um, I guess we, yeah we kind of look at how we do our mixed farming a bit differently to how we used to do it 
And I think our mixed farming used to be very in silos before, very sort of we had a dairy and we had a pig farm and they were kind of in their own little areas. And now after doing the Nuffield, after doing holistic management and all that sort of stuff, we realised how much we need to integrate all those activities much more. So a bit more of a true mixed farmer now, I'd like to, th- like to think of myself as. You're not really a traditional mixed farmer, are you, in the way that you are mixed farming. That is the beauty of what we've seen today. I, I have the fortunate ability to go and see an awful lot of farms and, and visit dairy farms, and I have clients with dairy farms. Nothing I've seen that I normally see on dairy farms is anything I've seen today, and, and that's probably what's really quite blown my mind. Uh, and the very way in which you, you, you manage your livestock, the way you actually set up the whole dairy enterprise, from, from start to finish, is, is very, very different than anybody else would probably be doing. Is that right with that, really, for me? I, I think my, my kind of vision of a dairy farm, if you're going to see a dairy farm, is you're going to see a yard, and you're going to see massive slurry storage facilities. You're going to see, you know, probably black and whites out on dark green rye grass, and possibly roaring around cutting silage if you're probably a bit too cold this time of year but could we get get going yeah and come here and the first thing i saw as i approached the the estate was the mobile milking parlor Uh, in our last podcast with george hosier he he mentioned the the hosier milking bale which um they were looking at some time ago so this is a new version but you're not only are you doing the mobile milking you don't have a yard that you're washing down and you have it and, and all the issues around slurry and, and, it, and everything else but it's the way you're doing it as well do you want to just talk us through yeah I guess I, I, I suppose it all comes from from the, the findings of the Nuffield was, which was really about us having to uh, to farm in a way that was going to deal with the ever needing demand for growth in our businesses so you know if we to stand still we've got to keep growing it's you know people can debate whether that's right in, in, in economics or not but it's the, the reality of, of where we're at so and in the commercial sort of commodity farming that we were doing standing still and trying to grow at the same time there's no I couldn't find where growth was going to come in, in our arable farming model it just wasn't going to exist so what I saw on Nuffield was a whole lot of um, ways of, of gaining productivity through integrating more enterprises and through looking a bit more to what nature was doing and kind of working with nature and, and capturing more sort of that free solar energy we've got and doing that sort of stuff. So uh, it, it was going to end up being a much more diverse business that I was going to have to do. And quite early on, on the, on the change of putting grass back into the system, I kind of realised that I didn't really have the mental capacity to deal with this this <laughs> level of change and, and interaction that was needed. So sort of heart back to the Nuffield and, and saw a farm called Polyface Farms that was uh, the farm of many faces as they call it um, and, and realised that actually I needed to uh, bring more people on the journey and, and to share to share that sort of that management that, that, that problem solving sort of side of things so uh, yeah so from the people point of view we, we, we said right well um, the, the share farming model the model where uh, we both pool our resources so We've we've got a you know land obviously we've got uh, a sound business that has got a, an element of capital we've got uh, business experience of how to run businesses and that sort of stuff but we probably haven't got an abundance of time to go and get new enterprises up and going we haven't got as much enthusiasm as we could have to to keep driving those new enterprises new enterprises all the different time and that's really where the share farmers come in and we you know we want them to come in and have their you know 
energy energy and that, yeah, exactly. yeah. That, that, that will happen so um so that's kind of why we, we use share farmers but the, the, i guess that the other bit and the really important bit that, that complements the share farming and and the system that you just described seeing on our farm is, is this idea of mobile infrastructure which was yeah. really um a, a big thing from polyface from doing holistic management this idea that when it's mobile, you, you can scale up, you can scale down really easily. You can make things just much more dynamic and reactive to what's going on. You can, you know, you can take your dairy farm to wherever on the farm there's grass or something to eat. The share farmers have got their own farm, but it doesn't have the land, so they've got yeah. all the bits of the farm they need, which is the not buildings, but the operations get the, the infrastructure, yeah. and so they, they kind of can have their own independence in their own right, and that yeah. that works really well. We were talking about earlier on how, um, and you, you mentioned it actually when before this was a dairy farm before, and that you'd effectively have the the fixed dairy in the the middle of the farm, and then the fields around that would be the ones where the greatest fertility were, and you know the, everything grew grew best, and and then the further you went from the farm, things got worse because you had effectively cropped that and brought it back to the dairy, so you'd kind of pinched it from one part of the farm and, and mm. put it into another part because of the this kind of disconnect between it it's a mixed enterprise but the mix doesn't go across the yeah. whole enterprise. And so with your like you say, you can you can basically stick the dairy farm on any bit of land anywhere and, and all across your your estate here. Which means you can actually start you can reverse that process. And that's a whole that's what we talk about in terms of regenerative farming or farming with nature or whatever you want to call it is that you you can actually flip the thing on its head and you can put back so effectively with this system you can then go back and start restoring the whole estate yeah and, and actually get a bit more of a balance balancing yeah exactly yeah and and so we would do things like uh taking silage cuts from or hay or something from from the area that used to be the dairy we still know that's the better ground and uh, and the cows milk better there and instead of saying well that's the better ground. Let's always milk there. Let's take some of that fertility or that those minerals. It's not really. It's such a nuanced thing. It's not like that. It grows better or less. You know, it, from visually, it all looks green across the mm. whole farm. But for some reason, those areas still around the barn they still produce better milk. But instead of saying right, well, that's where we need to produce milk. Let's try and move that fertility and take it out. Yeah, and that's something that that um, yeah, it's quite important. It, it it's funny because it kind of goes on the head of some of the permaculture sort of principles which is all about the radiation from the house and and having your most intensive activities done around the house and then radiating out yeah and we're kind of saying we don't really want to do that part of of permaculture (laughs) but then is that an issue of scale do you think in terms of Um, i suppose the question could be can permaculture work on a few thousand acres I, i can't see why permaculture couldn't work on a few thousand acres but i think I think maybe that, that, that then that scale comes at a landscape level, and then you have like you, you, you still have your riparian areas, which are like I don't know, up on the hills of Wales or somewhere, you know. That, yeah. Uh, and so if you look at the whole of a, a landscape as a yeah. permaculture thing, yeah, within it. So within our ring fence, I guess it's we're kind of yeah a bit different to that. We talked um, we <laughs> we talked earlier on about other livestock that have been on the farm. We we talked about sheep, and they they're not here now. The interesting thing is about this whole thing about reintroducing livestock onto land is that with it comes an element of a certain cows on gates, cows on gates, yeah. the phone ringing. You know, we, yeah. we we were delayed recording the podcast because the phone didn't stop ringing. 
and because you have what did you say seventeen and a half thousand cars a day passing yeah. passing the yard here probably here most of them but yeah you know, this whole mobile thing you know about how you move things around and, and actually your a lot of your kit you were saying you know you just hook it up onto a trailer onto a, a, a chassis and you, you are pretty mobile around the whole place I suppose whether it's permaculture or regenerative you we we need to find ways that we can actually put things back. Whether it's fertility, functionality, nutrient cycling, whatever we want to call it. But it's, it's interesting to see it on a level, because you've got how many, 400 cows? That yeah, 450, 480 odd cows out there, yeah. 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 I was going to bring the dairy a little bit back into, into focus here. Um, I, think, I think trying to give people a vision of how, you, how, how it is, almost paint a picture of how you have 400 cows but you don't milk them twice a day or even three times a day do you, you milk them very differently and and I think if we could just run through how often in the season of milk and things like that yeah, yeah. very very yeah. different yeah. Than, than what everybody thinks and this yeah. is what gets me very excited about what you're doing really and I, and I think yeah yeah so it's a, so it's a, a spring carving herd I'm probably going to get some of the details wrong because Ollie who runs the the, uh, the dairy is the the person that manages it and that's the beauty of share farming is he specializes in 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 doing that and I specialize on the other bit you know the, the whole yeah business whole running business, so, yeah. but so, yeah so so Ollie runs a, a spring spring carving which means that uh, the cows carve in March and we try and keep that down to sort of six or seven weeks I'd say 480 odd cows carving in that time and then the cows milk up until sometime in December. Um, we don't put a fixed date on it. If it gets cold and wet and muddy and horrible and, and the cows are a bit annoyed with being milked and the people are being a bit annoyed with being milked, and you know, or not, they don't milk the people. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, that's a new enterprise. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so the people are annoyed with doing the milking. They, it's a bit flexible as to when we end. We milk uh, once a day, so instead of the, the twice a day or whatever, and that once a day milking is quite handy because it means that we can be a bit more reactive as to when we milk. So, you know, when we get into December and the clocks have changed, the cows really don't really like being moved in, in, when it's dark. So mm-hmm. we move to milking, you know, maybe more like 10, 11 o'clock and it's a bit warmer and if the pipes were going to be frozen, they're less frozen then or whatever. So we can be a, little, a bit more reactive then during carving uh, we can run around, I say we, again I don't do anything, but anyway, the, 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 uh, Ollie and, and his team can run around and, and um, deal with carving and all the emergencies that happened overnight and then do some milking in the afternoon, you know, and, yeah. and we can be much more, you know, fit into the cycle. So yeah, so, so that's how it, I guess the system works in effect. We don't feed in the, in the parlour at all, um, so the only thing that, that encourages a cow to go through the parlour is the fact that it's going to get new grass on the other side on the other side yeah Yeah. so we take the big arable field so you know quite a big landscape we're right on the edge of the downs um average field size with i don't know 30 30 odd hectares Mm. 35 hectares somewhere around there so some pretty big fields and we we split them down into seven hectare blocks for the the four years of of grass phase so there's a four-year grass phase four-year cropping phase so we split them into paddocks and then pick the paddocks up and go so yeah it makes that sort of daily move quite easy and so what area is the herd on per day? So if you're moving daily, what's the size of your... It depends on the... Um, quality and... Yeah, so it depends on quality time of year and everything else. But they're, they're seven hectare paddocks. Okay, sometimes so they'll be on a, on a uh, two days a paddock, not very often. Sometimes they'll be on two paddocks a day. We can really open that out and yeah. go to wherever we need to, according to what's, what's going on the, on the yeah. system. 
So when we when we had a look at it, effectively the the, the parlour is a herringbone parlour, basically on a trailer, and then you've got a, a lorry alongside a tanker there, and the like the plant room, yeah, the plant yeah, the room that, that goes with it. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Water, you've just got above ground pipe work around yeah. the estate that you can move as you need to. Yeah, mobile, um, mobile troughs, weren't they? On, on mobile troughs, troughs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, and as much as we can have mobile, the better, really. Yeah, yeah. And as you were saying, once the new grass, once the, the electric wire is down and access to the parlour is given, then the cows... Yeah, they come in the morning, yeah. yeah. So because they're being moved every day and they get moved every day as young stock, you just call them yeah. through the gate. And then yeah. because they've been used to being called, you call them to wherever you want. And yeah. it kind of, I, so I can remember milking, when we used to milk our cows, there was 500 cows yeah, in the shed and it was a, a 19, sorry, a nine-a-side herringbone parlour mm-hmm. and we used to do 500 cows through that we used to start at 4.30 in the morning and be done at about 7.30 at night or something wow. and it was just a horrible horrible experience mm-hmm. for both man and beast and, yeah. and um, you, you see these cows in the parlour and they're just so relaxed we're after I don't know three and a half thousand litres a cow we're not after yeah. anything crazy from them and, yeah. and so that, I guess that helps they're never, then we're not asking them to walk miles to the parlour and back we're taking the parlour to them the foot issues that most people have you know lameness and stones in the in the hoof and all that sort of thing just don't exist yeah the old cow gets stuck on a gate that's about it it's, it's, yeah. it's not it's just a completely pleasurable way of farming yeah and um, things like the the, the, the cost saving in, in muck spreading and slurry storage uh, and, and, and even ammonia loss yeah from not storing huge we're not mixing urine and, and, and manure together yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's just I, I just uh, if you're listening Helen I've got, got, got a funny feeling we're going to have a chat about you milking cows um, <laughs> chances are she's out working <laughs> to be honest <laughs> yeah. more than likely more than likely but you started the, the, the journey of 50% grass across the estate with sheep yeah Probably won't explain the terminology used, but essentially you moved away from sheep. Yeah, and I think, but I mean, I think if my passion was in sheep, it, the system would work with sheep. That's a really important thing to say. It's, right. it's not that that sheep aren't suited to even mob grazing. They're not. They're, they are suited. Sheep can mob graze. They can do all, all the different sort of grazing styles that we do. Some would say they're doing better. But you know, as, as a kid, when when I was young and in, in, you know, eight and nine I used to go when they were milking I used to go and I used to be singing to cows and I used to be yeah I remember when we, when we brought our first herd of, of jerseys and stuff and, and I, I can remember that so I, I kind of got a, a passion for cows anyway we never had animals on the farm when, when we got married me and my wife when we did go into dairy cows she said oh I knew you were going to do this and I, I don't know how she knew all this so it sort of suggests there is a bit of a, a bias towards towards cows there anyway I, I think sheep are they're amazing animals their, their efficiency compared to a cow is, is huge. That yeah, they, they 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 turn very often two lambs a year, in, uh, and and that lamb's ready for market in eight months. All well, those two lambs are ready for market mm-hmm. in eight months is pretty phenomenal. That they can do that over a cow. So no, they're they're a good a good beast to have on a farm. I think within our herbal lays, I I think their, their mineral requirements are such that they really go hunting for the exactly what they want, and I think that's what causes a lot of angst amongst the farmers when the sheep start moving and we you know, we, we had electric fences up started off with three strands to keep them in and then went to, to four strands and five strands and we ended up with eight strands <laughs> and um, yeah, they, they, they would jump 
people wouldn't believe uh, Ollie, um, who now runs a dairy. He, he's got his own sheep, and he'd keep it. He'd keep his Romneys in with with a wire. Sometimes yeah. with two wires, and mm. for some reason they just jump here. And I, and I think that might be indicative of, of soil quality and you know years of arable farming on the, on the land. Which yeah, we, when, when we talk about soil health, I know we're sort of moving on a bit, but we don't. I don't think we actually see that we've got bad soil health until you've got. Better soil health, yeah, you know, and, and I think that the sheep wandering is possibly if we grazed it, we would we would know as well if we were the grazers. <laughs> I think because <laughs> they're so yeah. close to it. Yeah, yeah. I certainly see uh, there's seasons when when sheep are much more prone to to wander and and to and, and that's typically the beginning of spring when the sweet grass is out and you can mm. smell it. And it's all an indication that sheep aren't happy where they are if they're getting out. And and I think that's one of the things that I observed is actually that's probably a sign of a system that needs more work yeah and it all takes time right it's a bit like, a bit like you said earlier on you've been working on the systems for five years and more yeah no, five to right, ten years probably yeah right yeah. yeah and it's just it's just every you learn a bit more every year every field that you go across at the next time you're learning a bit more about how everything functions together yeah and um, we're learning i guess or becoming more aware i suppose of practices and Things like uh, weaning land off, things like uh, the creation effect of, of Roundup and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it it does take time. Yeah. And it, and I didn't even know that that was happening. And and yeah. as I've learned more and, and discovered more, you think, oh wow, okay. It feel, it feels a lot of this feels like just pulling on that thread, doesn't it? On a slightly um, threadbare jumper. <laughs> and the, and the more you pull on this this whole thing, the more the jumper falls to pieces. We were talking earlier on about this and about the sort of the change after your Nuffield from the conventional way you were farming before and then the journey that's brought you to where you are now. And one thing that was really interesting is that you said, you know, I just didn't like the way I was farming. I think it was you said, I didn't like the way I was farming and very few people do. And I think there's very often in farmers that are close to the land, not probably not as close as they used to, but that really rang true with me because we're not in, in dairy or arable, we're, you know, we're fruit growing and bits and pieces, but I just didn't know how else to farm. I didn't like the way we farmed mm. and I didn't know how to make the change. I think this is what we were talking about earlier on and Ben, this is a, a you know, we've, I know we've talked about this before, but and you described it as, I want to change the way I do things, but I don't know where to start. And we, it was that piece about what's step one? And what does step one look like? Because it's not easy, is it? A bit like a bit like we were saying. Well, ask, where was step one for you? Yeah. Well, you, you know, did, yeah, did right. you just come home in, from Nuffield and go right? The whole of this fifty percent is going into grass tomorrow. Yeah. Or, 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 <laughs> That's awesome. That's what we call a big step. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose yes. Go back so at, at university, crop science. Where did you study that? At Harper. At Harper, yeah. yeah. But I'm sure it'd be the same anywhere. But crop science was, uh, you know, two fungicides and some insecticides, and that's mm. what growing a crop. How do you this weed? weed? No, yeah. No one ever said that you need that stuff because the system's broken, not, not right. Yeah. yeah. No yeah. one ever said why. They just said yeah. this is the ingredient. That's, that's how you grow a crop. So you know, you can't blame anyone for, yeah. for not thinking differently or knowing, knowing differently I mean like, and all, all the stuff I've done uh, I've probably found it on YouTube I think and mm. and just work from there and, and not much of it is new I suppose that I've I've put it all together but yeah. the actual individual bits but um, we're not it's got to be in context for your own situation isn't it yeah exactly context is a really big thing so holistic management course was really good so starting off with that context is um, a really good uh, reminder of that what is it we're trying to achieve so I'm not worried I'm not worried about 
not my neighbours think too much. We, we had our first direct drill in '96. We had mounds of straw where it got raked up behind the combine where the chop didn't work and all the rest of it. And, that, and far, you know, neighbours coming around and say, "Oh, I could never do that. It looks a mess." And we, we, that's kind of I've had. I grew up with that. I, I, I came back to the farm when we'd already been doing that, so I didn't know much different than farmers yeah. ridiculing us. So that was kind of <laughs> that, that, that's how that goes. So it, it wasn't hard to upset farmers even more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. upset the apple cart. So. I did a budget, I did a cash flow, a five-year cash flow budget to prove that putting the sheep in the system could work. Um, we have, uh, as, a, as a limited company, we have a board meeting, so I board of directors and I uh, had to explain to them what I was trying to do. And I remember one of the, the directors saying, well, the biggest thing you've got here is uh, a passion. And if you, you know, the reason it's going to fail isn't passion. And, and if you've got passion, it's probably worth just being able to get on and do it. Uh, I was young enough. That's the other thing. You know, so succession was right. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we were. I was in my uh, early thirties when I did the Nuffield, and so I was. I was young enough to be able to take a change. The business was able to sustain me. Yeah. You know, get, getting something wrong and and then right again. And and my stage of life. You know, I didn't have kids and you know, loads. I did. I did have one kid, but uh, I didn't have. You know, like all the financial pressures that yeah. the kids cost and all that sort of thing. And, and time pressures as well. Yeah, time pressures, all that sort of stuff. So there was a lot of things that were right that enabled me to, to, to say, right, I can get on and do this stuff. I'll just jump in there. Do you, do you think that is something that, that needs looking at more in British agriculture? We did have a chat as we were driving around about ageing population of farmers and succession and young, keen people. And um, I do find disparities across the UK where, where, where there's certain areas where, unfortunately almost grandfathers are still still running the farm and father and son are chomping at the bit to get going and yet you put the importance of, of being young and enthusiastic and, and having that mm. which I, I totally agree with I just thought I'd, I'd ask your opinion of, of, mm. of that really it's sad but I think it's a sad fact that some of the most dynamic farms are where unfortunately the generation four died at, mm-hmm. and left a son or daughter at like 25 or 21 or you get a new new entrant that's coming at that young, and and those guys really their, their farms are just completely just storm, storming away. And you know, but if you think about change management, how long it takes to impact change on a farm, and I think you know twenty years is probably getting close to the right sort of number. So if you think you have got someone coming in and at get the reins at forty five, if it's it's taken them twenty years after 45 to sort of understand how it all works make it a whole system up and flying and running and then yeah maybe five years of enjoying the fact they've got it there and then all of a sudden they're in their 60s and 70s and then the next generation's then 45 and, and that, yeah. that's a snowball effect that it takes that long it's just a fact it takes that long to, to happen so yeah it's a, it's a thing and it would be lovely if there was more youth I think the share farming is quite a nice way of getting youngsters in I, th- I think the other thing is actually you see that once it's happened once in that generation sort of chain that the yeah. early succession seems to happen more often because I suppose farming you're quite often you're, you're asking yourself lots of questions and you're thinking well what if what if what if and after 20 or 30 years of doing that you either know the answer or you don't and, and, you, and you stop asking and you stop asking and, and so if you can have that that time spell younger which is what happens when you've got an earlier succession it, it then leads to itself so so where do you see your children at age in your successional plan? One of the things in our in our business plan is that I will retire from leadership of the business by uh, 2041. I will, the spring of 2041, I will be 60. I just 
I've been 60 that August, the August before and say so, yeah I'll, I'll move on from leadership then and if the next generation want to be running the farm then you know I imagine they'll be in their th- they'll be just coming to their 30s they should have been on the in the business before that the other thing I see is a lot of people in farming with land or whatever with no success are just holding on because they don't know what else to do yeah. and I think by drawing a line in the sand saying well actually right let's go and enjoy the fruits of what work we've done is really important as well so it's just I've, I've got a line for when I say right that's my time and I think that's important to focus the whole Definitely. dimension of business going on forward from that and allow succession in whatever form it takes Do you think the um, government intervention in terms of this lump sum payment is going to have any effect on that? No No I don't think so. No, it's, it's all about grey matter and emotions, isn't it? It's yeah. got nothing to do with money. Yeah, I think that's it's right. Money, yeah. You could tell the farm and have money, it's not. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So I, I'll ask the next question. Go um, You're all arable, obviously. You came in and put 50% grass down, which means we've still got 50% arable. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk us through what... We've saw some amazing things you're doing in, in, in the organic side of, of farming, and certainly some of the things you're trying, quite revolutionary, should we say. Mm. Perhaps you'd like to talk, just talk us through what you're seeing and what, what you're yeah. doing, and, and, and frustrations as well. Um, <laughs> I think we had a, 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 a brief chat about thirty kilos of nitrogen would might be useful. Yeah. Um, and, and, and one thing I think is really important when we do do all this podcast and things is, is not to paint everything that it is absolutely beautiful and everything mm. is much like a cow stuck on gates. There are things and times when it goes wrong and there, there are wishes and things like that and mm. the electric fence and everything out as you were saying, you know, you've got no glyphosate now to spray around the base of electric fences and there are solutions, there are, there are workable solutions but there are an awful lot of questions being asked as well, aren't there? Mm. Yeah, I think well, the, 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 the biggest thing that's uh, sent me to, uh, to counselling after I, after through this um, process was, I guess sort of two or three years in I, I went through you, you go through this sort of in change management you go through like a, a bit of success and you get into into a pit, a pit of despair and then you start to thrive again after that and that's a sort of a, a standard sort of change management graph that you could show or a model they could show and uh, um, I think that one of the things that you find in a lot of the storybooks and the podcasts and everything else is that change journey that, that pit of despair area is not discussed enough and mm. It's something that I really try to, whenever I do talks, is to, to really talk about, you know, because it, it's there and, you know, there's got to be a lot of support for that that change. It's a, it's, a, it's a big emotional time for everyone involved. So, yeah, so that that's the thing that you asked me about arable crops. No, no, oh, I, I think that's really... <laughs> and, and funny enough, what's really um, quite incredible, the, the pit of despair, I don't know that terminology, and it's very good. I, I, I meet an awful lot of people that read Gabe Brown's book, Dirt to Soil. Mm. And... and seem to have forgotten about four chapters of the book that talk about four years of catastrophic failure. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden people are going out and buying a direct drill and expecting everything to work. And it's only when you actually try and explain to them, just go and read the book again. Hmm. There were just disastrous crop failures, essentially putting biomass and, and, and organic matter and all sorts of nutrients cycling back into the ground for four years. Yeah. And if you can afford to do that, that's fantastic. But if you aren't, mm. then we have to use a, a bit of an organised plan of, of how to get there. Yeah. Um, and even in that short book, people gloss over that, that pit of despair very very easily. But yeah, we'll, we'll go back <laughs> on that. Before we go back into Arable, because I know almost nothing about Arable, but the... the well, you don't know a lot about Arable. No, that's <laughs> true. But... 
What I find interesting about this whole thing is that when we were talking earlier on about not liking the way you farm but not knowing how to do it differently, mm. and then you do decide to do it differently, and ultimately you find yourself in the unknown to a certain extent. And mm. So the effect of the change, it kind of, in some ways, the way I've found it is that it, you kind of, it questions your sense of self in some ways because you, you've always been a farmer. And then all of a sudden you're sort of taking a dim view on the way you used to farm, but you know, and it's then how you transition out of that, and yeah. But then, then, then try like being an arable farmer, an organic arable farmer, driving around seeing all your neighbours' crops drill yeah. per- to perfection. Yeah, not a single plant out of space, and then at harvest time or just before harvest time in June, the the just the fields, just a beautiful sort of gold blue. Well, yeah, before that, before when they're sort of bluey green colour. I said I didn't know the heads that. everywhere and. The, the, yeah, you know, the yeah. you're like, and you drive to your crop, you're like, oh god! And then there's a, yeah, there's a, a, a global war situation on, and we've got to feed the world, and 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 you see their crops, and you see my crops, and you're like, hang on a minute, that challenge is there for me, yeah, all the time, and it's it's um, I don't think I'll ever go away, but um, but you can probably rest assured that the people eating your food have got a better chance of survival than the people eating the the highly processed, high protein white. Yeah, you got to hope so, yeah. But it's very visual, isn't it's, it? It's very visual, yeah. And it, but it's it, and and those differences, those nuances, and how you eat and how you do all this sort of stuff. They're, they're, they're long, drawn out processes. They're not an overnight. I've eaten that, so now I'm going to be ill, or I've eaten yeah, that, and now I'm going to thrive. Yeah, and you it, don't and see it. No, it's very um, yeah, yeah. The what, uh, chron- uh, is it chronic or the other one? I don't know. One of these. Chronic, one of the yeah, one of the yeah, one of the yeah, one of those two. But yeah, sorry. Um, no, no, it's absolutely right. Um, so, what crops are you crops, growing? Yeah, so, we've, we've split the farm into eight cropping blocks, effectively, and so four of the cropping blocks are grass, and then every year one of those cropping blocks comes out of grass, goes into crops, and one of the one of the crop blocks is undersown into grass and goes into grass. So that's kind of into herbal layers as opposed to grass, so that's how it works. So we always have a spring crop after the grass, because we've used the grass that winter for the cows to overwinter on. So there's normally you know a level of compaction and that sort of stuff. Um, so spring crop, uh, I, I generally go for something. If I've got to plough the ground, I try and go for more of the niche crops. So I go for like the quinoas or the um, the linseeds. I've got some lupins in this year in the first first year crop. I've got some spring oats in as well. Um, so the, but the, generally the crops that need the, the cleaner ground uh, and a higher value that they're going to benefit from the from the more fertility. That's what I do in the first year. Then um, I go for a winter crop after that, and kind of basing it mainly around winter um, winter oats, because of having that four years of, of grass and the other crop, I can then have a gluten free. I can get, hit the gluten free market in, in oats, which is a bit more lucrative than than conventional crops. Then I might go into a wheat, and then I'd go into uh, or a spelt or something, you know, like a that sort of thing. And then I go into a spring crop again. I don't really know what that would be until the year, but it, it'd be a spring crop. It might be another spout or something like that. So it's not very fixed. It's taking opportunity of, of what's going on in the, in the market and how early we harvest or whatever. We'll always undersay our cropland with clovers and uh, some. We'll be on clovers and, and uh, plantain and, and chicory this year. We've underseen just because I managed to harvest that seed and it was it was available. But so I, I kind of don't see the point in trying to put cover crops in after harvest because it's normally too late here so i'll go through and put them in in sort of may may time april may time get them in 
I can deal with that level of green underneath with a, I use a swather so quite often I'll swath the if, if there's too much green in, in amongst where I'm, the harvesting zone if you like um, where the head is I'll go through and swath and then leave it in a row for a couple of days and then pick up with the pickup header so um, that's that's how I kind of do the, the cropping yeah and you said that the swathing in actual fact taking two lots of 21 foot rows yeah put them together make combine efficiency work better thrashing yes exactly, actually yeah. keeping these modern combines going yeah fed. and we, we do try and yeah so I've, I've got a carrier so I was doing when I was doing the arable farming we were farming I was combining three and a half thousand acres with, with one machine and I was you know working all the all the summers all the days it was it was wasn't raining basically throughout the summer we kept that sort of size of machine to farm uh, in crop so we now crop about 1200 acres of organic crops so we work very few Saturdays or Sundays um, through the summer and I tried to do work even fewer days in, in August as well I try and get a couple of weeks off at least in August if not more but that so that's kind of how we how we do that yeah yeah I think you're certainly striving better as a work-life balance than, than certainly I am currently um, and, and it's something I need to start focusing on a bit more and I, and I, and I, and I admire the fact that you're of a generation that's very much changed in the way that uh, there's an awful the generation before us always felt it was vital that they were on the farm at least seven days a week um, and it's certainly working at least, at least mm. eight, eight hours was so it was almost a macho thing and I do think I, I, I certainly admire the fact that in an ideal world you, you take all the stuff with your children whilst they were on, on some holidays and I think that's, that's absolutely brilliant yeah well, we haven't talked about it, but uh, much. I've sort of keep mentioning this sort of a holistic management thing, but that for me that was really important because it it sort of got me to think about what sort of life I wanted to lead, you know. And and once you realise, once you work out what sort of life you want to lead and how that life's going to integrate with the, you know, the, the ecosystem services around you, know, the, the the solar energy capture, the water system, all that sort of stuff. Once you realise that and, and start writing that down, then you, you then you have to then farm accordingly so you know knowing when I want to retire I have to then start thinking about retirement plans and putting money aside knowing that I want to have all the stuff I have to then think about which crops I grow and how I set the farm up to allow that to happen and I guess starting off with that that initial why and that initial reason to start with is actually a really good grounding point to then judge all the decisions you're going to make from then onwards you know kind of fit how it will work yeah yeah no I think it's brilliant I'll just change tack a little bit. There was a phrase you used today that um, I thought was absolutely fantastic. Not the sheep one. Not the sheep one. No, no, right. no we'll, we'll, we'll bypass the sheep one. Um, <laughs> although it was brilliant. Um, and, and, and it was one, one I will certainly use in the future in, in certain company. No, um, gorilla gardening. Yeah. Yes. Well, it, it, I, I'm not going to say another word because I, I, I think the concept's fantastic and it, it made my head spin and I think you need to introduce to, to the audience what you mean by gorilla gardening. I think it's fantastic. And, and this isn't milking gorillas, is it? <laughs> no, we, no, no, we're going to garden gorillas. We're going to garden gorillas. Garden gorillas. Gorilla gardening. So, well, I, I kind of... I've, I've launched this idea and try, trying to get more and more uh, people to pitch their ideas to us. So we run this thing called Pitch Up, which is in, in every November. Little plug, but um, to, to pitch their ideas to us. And quite often I get people pitching their market gardening ideas to us. So, so they want to set up a, a, a market garden on the farm. 
uh, and run run that as a business. And it, it's kind of okay. I can see why they want to do that, and I understand that, and it's quite exciting. But then the question is, well, how how does that that market garden sort of integrate, and how do we stack a market garden? Uh, yeah, how does that, how does a market garden show any form of stacking within the whole yeah. integration of this of the estate? And I think that what I want to see from a gardening enterprise is one that actually really embines itself in the opportunities created by the way that we farm. So if we end up with a, a cow's overwintering in one area and we've got a big straw pad, then we know we've got nutrients and stuff there. So why don't we, instead of dragging the nutrients around, why don't we take our gardening activities to that area where we know we've got nutrient hotspots, we know that squash and, and pumpkins will grow in that sort of environment, so let's just grow them there. So we're kind of being gorilla because we're kind of taking... We're looking at the whole area and we're just finding, seeing, oh, look, there's an opportunity, let's do it. Yeah. Like they do, you, know, you see it all through Kenya uh, um, in Nairobi. You know, every little bit of street has got vegetables just growing in any bit of bare patch. And it's that sort of same thing, but doing it on a farm scale in, in Hampshire. You know, that, that's the kind of concept that I can see in gorilla, gorilla gardening. I don't know, it might even be... I bet if we type it into YouTube, it'll be there. And it's not new at all, but you know. I, I do it constantly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, but that, that's kind of what I think. Yeah, and and just seeing the opportunities or creating opportunities where we can grow stuff and and the higher value things. I think it's no, I think it's, it, it's fantastic. Integrating market gardening in a in a mobile system is, is yeah. something that is is really quite you know like, the herbal areas are full of pickable species you know salad there's a whole load of salad crops already growing the whole day so just go and pick them do you know <laughs> <laughs> should we have the wikipedia for gorilla gardening go on gorilla gardening is the act of gardening raising food plants or flowers on land that the gardeners do not have the legal rights to cultivate oh. well such, as, such, as, such as abandoned sites areas that are not being cared for or private property it encompasses a diverse range of people and motivations, ranging from gardeners who spill over their legal boundaries to gardeners with a political purpose, who seek to provoke change by using guerrilla gardening as a form of protest or direct action. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, anyway, how much you gorilla gardening? Yeah. Yeah. Chimpanzee farm gardening. Yeah. I was thinking about the gorillas, the gorilla army yeah, 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 that's yeah, what that's what yeah. yeah, the gorillas, yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of what we're trying to do. Yeah, no, I think, it, but I think it's usually just adapt it for Middle England. Or feet, or yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like you've done it's a more polite, gentler way of gorillas. Yeah, basically, knock on the door before. Yeah, just, yeah. Let's do this, let's do it by agreement. By consent, yeah, gorilla gardening by consent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess it's more, I guess the other way I look at it is it's kind of low range or free range gardening or something like that. Yeah, nomadic gardening. Which one? Nomadic. 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 That was the other word I thought. Nomad gardening. Gorilla gardening rolls, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it's got a brand, more of a brand to it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm definitely going to run with. Yeah, I think it. Watch this space in the rest of the world. He's taking your ideas away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The gorilla gardener. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's brilliant, and, and and the idea and the concept is absolutely great, and I think that's really good. We'll, we'll just move on a little bit onto on something that um, I've only been involved in, in in probably the last twelve eighteen months, um, and, and and it just so happens you live in a uh, in an AOMB here, an uh, area of outstanding natural beauty. There's a few things um, picked up on today. Uh, one of them was the fact you've got corn buntings which makes me incredibly jealous. I just wonder whether I can trap them 
and take them home. But, but the only um, what we discussed and what I found is, is is working with the area of outstanding natural beauty groups and and what we call FIPL now, which is farming and protected landscapes, are are really allowing you to um, to go out at your ideas of farming in these protected landscapes in such a way that are being supported and encouraged. And they're certainly um, helping you out, and they're, they're doing various things with me. And, you know, we saw some of it and some of the machinery that they're helping, you, you know, and, and, and your ideas and, and, and actually bringing those to life. And perhaps you talk about those uh, and, and, and the fact what what the AOMB and FIPL are doing for you. So basically, it's, it's de-risking is what we're after. We're trying to de-risk all this stuff. I've got to wake up every day with a new idea um, to be able to put those into action we need to look at ways of, of taking the risk out of that because um, otherwise this change isn't going to happen effectively and so we the, the ways of, of de-risking for me is the the FIPL system uh, working with a water company and R&D tax credits so those are the three things that I use to try and de-risk the uh, yeah, FIPL and the AOMB have been really they're really interested in I, they, they get approached all the time by people saying oh we want a direct drill and they come up with they, they the, the people come up with their reasons why a direct drill is it should be grant funded and why it should be yeah they're, they're generally good reasons but um, I think that the boards get pretty bored of, of hearing that story over and again um, and so when they get a, a bit of a new idea they really really do get on board with it and, and um, they kind of want to make this stuff happen yeah, they're looking for people that will do it for them. And I think the, the important thing about FIPL and, and, and the AMB, and for those that are living in an, an area of outstanding natural beauty, I think, I think they're certainly looking for people to reach out to them as well under the farming in protected landscape. But what is absolutely brilliant if you have an idea of a mm. way of farming with the environment in, in mind, and therefore you know encouraging a food production, but b also the preservation or, or, or uplift of, of the environment. It's a conversation you can have with people. Unlike the, a lot of the DEFRA schemes, the, the, the countryside stewardships and, and, and mid-tier and all those sort of schemes that are very much, this is what you should do, can you squeeze it or shoehorn it into, mm. your, into your business? On Often uh, you can't. The beauty, I think, is having conversations with real people that come and visit your farm and you show them your vision. And it's up to you to sell them your vision and, and what, you, what you're doing. But, but what a conversation you can have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, and the, and the boards are generally, you know, the people on those football boards are generally farmers or ecology type people. So they're, they're like you say, they they are looking for practical solutions and action to happen now. They're not, you know, I guess some of these other people are. Well, it always feels like they're looking for ways not to give you the money in the way, but yeah, yeah of course, I, I think they <laughs> as in the other boards, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. there's so many loops you got to jump through. Whereas um, people, if you can give them a good. A good reason, and they they really get behind you and, and support. Because you've got a really interesting roadmap arriving, haven't you? That I'm not jealous about at all. No, right. Um, yeah, because of your strip till. Um, do you want to explain what a roadmap is? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it sounds like some kind of new social movement. So you need to explain it. What was, okay, a roadmap ro- ro- is um, is essentially cropping with uh, strip till or, or any 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 way you can um, crop ground that allows enough space between either rows of crops or rows of trees even to, to a point, and controlling weed or, or grasses that are growing between those, rather than with herbicides, is actually um, use a mower. Um, Helen Lover spent last year mowing with a little hater 
12 inch mower up in between all our asparagus beds for most of last summer and on, on the premise that we would actually look at designing something that would fit on the front of a tractor I mean, designing something would really help her maybe just getting something would be even better <laughs> yeah. um, so we just Tim happens to um, have a solution for Helen don't you yeah, yeah. Well, I happen to have found someone else's solution mm-hmm. and nicked it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, working with with uh, with Wild Farmed and their um, their system, so with Andy Cato and and what they're trying to do with their with their cropping system. And so he's done a lot of the research, um, developed this this mower with um, a chap up in Scunthorpe somewhere. And um, so I, I think they're um, thirty foot cutting. Uh, sorry, thirty centimeter cutting heads. Uh, and we're, we're stripped till a 20 centimetre strip of grain or whatever the crop is um, in between. So every uh, every uh, half metre there will be 20 centimetres of crop and 30 centimetres of, of plant. On paper it sounds very interesting and very exciting, but uh, the concept still needs to be proven really. So And that's where FIPPA will come in really handy because they, they've decided you know, they, they want to back this. They really are after these sort of ideas. To They, they can see the, the benefits of having that continuous pasture that continuous green cover in the soil for helping out the the water it's mainly water but you know we, we, we'd go and talk about soil carbon and sequestration and all the rest of it but um, I suppose the thing they can grab is, is water so yeah we'll, we'll end up doing doing that but at the moment we're, st- we're still trying to work out how to get a wide enough definitely 20 centimetres of crop, crop area in that strip because the mower is only, only ever going to be 30 centimetres. So you, if you end up getting a narrow, narrower strip of crop, then you've still got an area that isn't sort of controlled, I suppose. Yeah, so it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to see how that develops. But it, it needs all those mechanisms in place. And, so, and then when we start thinking, so the, the standard way of putting these strips in would be to go straight up and down a field. But then we're saying, well, actually, if we're going to put strips in a field... And we're coming into a time of climate change, and we've got water and all the rest. But we ought to be thinking about key lines and, and moving instead of putting the strips straight up and down a field or straight across a field. Let's actually understand the topography and put the those strips if they're going to be there forever. Let's try and lay them out so the water is staying on our fields for as long as possible and not running off and doing all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then then we go into well, then we've got machinery going across hills, so then we need movable headstocks so the mower, the tractor can stay in the same place and the, the mower can move independently of the tractor and the double GPS units and all this sort of stuff, which is where we're going with it all, which is <laughs> a bit of a minefield because I'm not much of a, a technical tractor driver, but that's how it's going to end up, I think. I find, I, I sort of think that, you know, every good idea has a hundred problems, you know, because you, you come up, you think, yeah, this is an awesome idea, and then the more you pick away at it, the, the more <laughs> little tweaks and things yeah. you get. But so the problems, very often those problems that you think about aren't the ones that, yeah, that stop it. Yeah. That's what I've found. Yeah. And that's one thing I said to Fipple, I said, look, I know this is going to be, you know, there's going to be problems. These are the problems I know that, that I can already foresee, but I can guarantee the problem that, that we're going to have isn't on this list. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why we need extra support um, over normal machinery support because this is sort of another level of innovation that um, when it is genuine R&D and trying to prove concepts you know and it's like you say it's not without significant risk no absolutely not no and the R&D tax credits help um, yes massively but unfortunately they're only open to, to limited companies which is a bit of a, an yeah. oversight well, yeah so mm. I've just found out <laughs> set up a limited company but then you've got to be going for two years or so yeah, before you right. can start in the R&D. So. Yeah. Or, yeah. So, 
Yeah, yeah that's what um, that was. That's often when the, the companies that specialise in R and D tax credits come and talk to a huge audience, and there's a there's a corner of one slide that says only available to limited companies, <laughs> and, yes. and uh, there's about thirty hands go up when somebody <laughs> says any questions. They said, "What about if you're not a limited company?" Yeah. It's like, sorry. The water company, they, I mean, to give them their, their due, the water company have been really fantastic. And so our, our problem is nitrates in an aquifer. So we've mm-hmm. got um, an aquifer underneath and we've got chalk soils. And there's probably 50 years worth of nitrogen in that chalk that's mm-hmm. got to be flushed through somehow. So there's, and there's not a lot at the moment of, of knowledge about how to deal with that inland uh, nitrogen problem. There's, there's nitrogen runoff, yeah. you know, plant it's trees, biparium zones, all that sort of, yeah. but that legacy thing is there. It's a whole new ball game, and, and say uh, because when you look into it, the, the water companies deal with it by bringing basically cleaner water from elsewhere and blending it to get down below maximum levels of nitrate in water, isn't it? Well, here they've got a denitrification plant. Right. Okay. Yeah. Which and is very expensive. Yeah. And uh, say in our catchment, and say you know by putting that in, they're almost saying, well, for the next fifty years. Even if we stop doing anything now, we're still going to have to run that plant, that really mm. expensive system. And yeah, there's got to be a, a, a in- more interesting way of doing that. Yeah. Maybe some ponds with some ducks. And, uh, ducks and ponds. <laughs> what did you call it? Quackaponics. 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 Yeah. Quackaponics. Just, quick, just very quickly, you know, we've got a couple of minutes, Ben, but quackaponics, talk us through it. Well, if, um, you know, you were talking about more problems um, are, are raised than um, than are answered. So essentially, we, we sell uh, ducks, duck meat, um, goose meat, duck eggs, and, and goose eggs, and ours live a very nice life on a, on a on a duck pond, of which the duck water of which the water is probably plummeting in quality quite quickly through the, the very cycle of phosphate and nitrogen going in there through their excrement. So I'm I was wondering of taking that water and feeding it through a greenhouse and growing the vegetables in a in a hydroponics scenario but rather than using artificial fertilizers is actually just use that duck water that's, that's rather quite rich number one clean the water um, by the time it returns number two taking that uh, and, and growing vegetables for for the shop for the family and that sort of thing we are in phase one at the moment in so much as just putting thinking about it no 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 i've bought the greenhouse i've got a duck pond it's when you start thinking hydroponics should be rather quite simple and then realising there are about 15 different methods of either flood and drought and, and, and then there's all kinds of different media in which you can grow them on and in. And oh, I, Helen, Helen will crack it. Though, I well, I, <laughs> I, what I will guarantee uh, is there will be about nine different hydroponic systems available for sale rather quite quickly because I guarantee I will try the nine that will all fail before I hit the one that I should have uh, realised to get in. So unfortunately my R&D is, is generally uh, after reading and reading and reading is jumped straight into failure. Um, mm, well done. Yes. You've got, you got to fail. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's the it's only way. It, it, keep failing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, learning as we call it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think we should call it failing and, and just embrace yeah. it. Yeah. 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 I um, agree. So, Tim, you're obviously, you, you've got your retirement plan sorted out. What's in the uh, the pipeline for the near future? Near to medium <sighs> term, before you hang your boots up. So, well, we want to have, we've got two share farming agreements in at the moment. Um, we've got another one just starting up through our last round of pitch up. And I want to see, by the time I retire, I want to have 20 plus nice. um, enterprises on the, on the farm doing their, their things, all integrated. 
we've got we've got our buildings on the farm. I'd love to see all those buildings converting the raw materials from the farm into value adding through those buildings, taking the waste products from those buildings back, or the, we won't even call them waste products, but yeah. the byproducts yeah. back onto the onto the fields, producing a system, getting that loop completely and utterly closed up is for me that's that's what I want to see. And so a whole ecosystem and economic sort of system of, of activities going on. That's yeah. that's. Well, I think that's brilliant. And I think that um, brings us neatly to the end of our our Farming for Change podcast today on Earth Day. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. It's Friday afternoon. You've been a, a great host and it's been really good chatting to you. And so, yeah, wish you all the best and we'll be, um, we'll be keeping an eye on it. And as you say, you know, pitch away, pitch up in November, you say, to try and keep all these expressions of interest. If there's any budding gorilla gardeners out there in the Hampshire area, then um, obviously get in touch and then see see what's going on. But thanks to everyone out there for listening. We will be doing another one fairly soon over in the West Country, your way, I think, Ben. Yeah, Monmouth. Yeah, Monmouth. Yeah, so, yeah, keep your eyes out for the next one and uh, we we'll look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you.